0: Welcome to Minds, the podcast that unlocks the secrets needed to scale your business from seven figures per year to seven figures per month and beyond. On the show, we pick the brains of leading business owners, marketing geniuses, growth experts, and serial entrepreneurs tapping into their minds to uncover the true formula for e-commerce success. The podcast is created by Megaphone, Australia's award-winning experts in digital marketing. Now enjoy the episode and don't forget to subscribe. So, Max, thanks for joining us today. Very excited to talk to you about product development because no matter what kind of company you are, you're nothing without a product. Let's start at the beginning. Let's say you're already in the e-commerce space and you have a successful product. You're doing six, seven figures and you want to bring in something else. Where do you start?
1: So... I always think that firstly, like a good product can really make your whole life so much easier. And I think that sometimes we get people that haven't necessarily done the testing needed to validate a product. And so there's a few different ways that you can think about a product. You can think about a me too product, which is proven already else somewhere and you're selling it as well. You can try to innovate on a product. You can try to innovate totally to create something that's a game changer, which is obviously the most difficult. So I really think it starts with product validation. And so thinking about how do we determine if this new product idea is going to be successful, whether that's doing some market research, speaking to people, finding people that are currently buying something similar, figuring out their pain points, and really starting to build a analytical, intelligent approach to finding a product that is going to be a lot easier to sell, which will take the burden off marketing. So then when you get great marketing and combine that together, it can explode.
0: Right. And so you say that it can take the burden off great marketing. Is there some sort of numerical approach do you have with that in terms of the COGS, the cost of goods?
1: Yeah, so I think COGS can come a little bit later down the line. I think first step is just finding something that's awesome. So finding a problem that hasn't been solved in a certain way or finding an additional benefit that your product can solve, finding additional value, whether it's in price or something, somewhere where the product is solving a problem in a more interesting way and then figuring out later if the price the market's willing to pay works with your cogs you know your cost of goods and all the other fees associated with that and so you might have some rough metrics that you want to work around you know i might think that if you're selling your product for under 20 30 you probably want to have repeat purchase value because you don't want to be spending money to acquire a customer that's only spending that much money when you're spending shipping and fulfillment all these other things so there has to be good repeat purchase value and if it's in the 60 to 200 average order value then there's often room to actually acquire a customer if it's over that then there has to have some level of impulsivity or some reason where people are going to buy it online and trust the sale online so there's different price ranges that you might think of as a general rule but there's no hard and fast rule with those things but yeah i think cogs come a little bit later in the decision making matrix and really it's just trying to find something that people are really excited about as your first opportunity
0: And how do you go about finding that space of excitement? Are there certain resources you use to find demand or trending topics uh, that are out there at the moment? Or where does it all begin for you when you're trying to come up with that next great idea?
1: So it's difficult. Um, And if it was easy, then I think everyone would be doing it. (laughs) Um, But there's definitely a lot of things that you can think about to try to make it a little bit more effective. So obviously, if you've already got a business, you're already doing hundred thousand dollars a year or whatever you're doing a million dollars a year you've already got an audience you've already got customers you can figure out firstly you can start to speak to them you know you can call them up on the phone you can do market research you might have a VIP Facebook group where you can start to poll them and you can figure out hey if we put this in a new color would you be interested hey what's your other biggest pain point that we're not solving when you're buying this category what's your favorite product in that category if you could add one thing to that product how would you change it? You know, if there's a product that existed in this category, what would you love to see? So there's a lot of intelligent open questions that you can ask to your current customers to start creating a, an image of what might be out there. Another thing is competitor research. Mm-hmm. So you can do a really good understanding of what is working well in the space, and is there an area or is there an opportunity to improve on what's already been done? You know, I love it in product development if you see a company that seems to be selling a lot but has bad marketing that's a sign that there's a big opportunity there i think mm-hmm. every other way reading books speaking to people you know being really invested in your product category as well the more that you living in the lens of that category or you know you you're connected to your consumers your customers then the more you're going to have a understanding of what are their pain points and start to develop products that they're going to really love
0: right so regarding your sense of community and utilizing the customers that you already have that's a common approach with a lot of e-commerce businesses these days but something that comes to mind when i think of that is how do you find the balance between following through on your vision that you originally had for your company and your product line and then adjusting to that demand that you perhaps didn't anticipate
1: yeah so i think that there's a balance definitely to be played between the vision that you start when you're starting up a company and then the vision that unfolds. And so I think that some of the most successful companies in the world, a lot of them, well, some of them maybe had a big vision and you read, I'm reading the book about the founder of uh, Lululemon right now. And he had a vision of like the super girl and she needs a pattern that can work to yoga and you know around the day or whatever it is and he was very strong to those core values and I think that that helped have a really strong brand presence and that that served him really well but I you know he, he envisioned the company maybe getting to ten million dollars one day and then selling it. he didn't think it was gonna be a thirty billion dollar company mm-hmm. and so the vision changes massively over time and sometimes that's dictated by customers responses new products that they want things like that I think that You need to be a little bit malleable I think a lot of the time people come in with a really strong brand vision they're like I'm selling you know these cans of soda to these people because that's you know that's what I think exists and that's the pain point that I think that they have and then you start selling it and you find out that you know a different segment of the market wants it and they also want it slightly different do you want to move where the market is really excited about your product or do you want to be really headstrong and say hey this is what I'm doing and so I think that some level of malleability is really important in your early stages You know you don't necessarily have a strong brand identity you don't necessarily know what your customers want until they've actually got your product started giving you feedback you're starting to develop so i think that having a vision that evolves and if you're a third fourth time entrepreneur you're raising a big money you're solving a bigger problem those people might have a better chance of sticking to one clear core vision but i think as a first second time entrepreneur as someone that's growing the business slower I think having that adaptability is going to be really advantageous to see where the opportunities are
0: let's say that you're you're at the stage where you've already got a product out there you've got two or three perhaps and you're looking to create another alternative with be that a different color a different style a slightly different product marketed at an older or younger demographic how do you assess and validate that idea before you put in x thousand dollars potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars into that order
1: yeah so i think a lot of what we've been talking about is how you would do the validation but you could even set up a pre-sale page and figure out which one sells the most you can have people vote for your favorite i see more and more brands now that are being smarter with their brand development approach they're going on instagram and saying hey do you want this design or this design hey what's your biggest problem you know on on facebook on instagram whatever it is they're using these social media platforms as a tool to really connect with people from their audience and let that dictate and if everyone's saying hey we want this in red then when you order it in red there's a good chance it's gonna work or if everyone's saying hey we want you know this can but in a bigger size or we want this flavor or whatever it is we see this new trend and we'd love for you guys to put your spin on it it's gonna make that risk a lot smaller when you're a total new brand getting started out and you don't have that audience then you might have to be a little bit more creative. You might have to leverage Facebook ads and run a giveaway and then survey people that enter the giveaway. You might have to set up a product page, say pre-sale, get a discount, kind of make your own Kickstarter. There's things. There's other ways where you can validate people want a product without just having to roll the dice and spending $100,000 on product and hoping that it'll sell.
0: Great. And if you've already found that product that you have in mind, you think this is going to be the next big thing for your business or if potentially you're a new business getting off the ground as well, how have you in the past dealt with sourcing and manufacturing? And is Are there any tips that you have for people who are at that stage, either their first, second, third, or fourth product, who are trying to navigate that complex web of do we go local? Do we go international? How do we deal with our minimum order quantities? So how would you navigate that behemoth of a space?
1: Yeah, so I'd say that this is a space that I'm learning more and more about and there's a few ways so obviously the number one way is Alibaba you can put up a request and what you're looking for or you can look at current manufacturing opportunities that are out there a lot of these manufacturing companies have some adaptability as well so if you find someone that's creating you know something within that space they might be have to solve some of the problems that you're trying to create with your product development you can also go on Fiverr Upwork to find product sourcing agents you can find local people in the area If you type in product sourcing you might be able to find someone locally that has people overseas as well and those people might give you access to different fulfillment manufacturing places that don't exist on Alibaba particularly if the bigger you get the bigger companies don't want to deal with a lot of a small Alibaba requests so they're not existing on those so you need some level of connection Mm -hmm. there is a tool that I don't remember the name of but if you Google search it you can also reverse search Companies to try to figure out who they're using.
0: Fantastic. We'll wow. we'll find that and put that in the show notes.
1: Yeah, I remember a, a Dylan, who was one of our clients from Brewmate. He mentioned that that's how he found his manufacturer to build his first prototype. And now he, he I think he did a hundred million dollars last year. Mm-hmm. So it's come a long way. But that's a great way to find someone really, really good. So there's a lot of different ways to try to find a good product manufacturer. But I think it's very important to not skip over that step and to try to get. Someone that understands the product that you're dealing with as well. Mm -hmm. They can make product suggestions as well. Someone that cares about quality, really trying to understand, you know, you're not looking for the best price necessarily, unless you're really trying to be a cost-cutting opportunity. You're trying to find someone that really understands your product category, and that's going to be really advantageous as you grow. On that note, do you think that going
0: international is a no-brainer in a sense? Is there any opportunity to create a significantly large e-commerce business in Australia without using alibaba or going to asia
1: yeah definitely I, th- I think it just depends on your category so obviously asia is going to be the predominant manufacturing opportunity for most goods but it depends on your category right if you're doing coffee you're not going to go to asia i don't know where the best coffee comes from but um south america south I think. america you know or you know the melbourne roasters or whatever mm-hmm. so you need to think about your product category you need to f- figure out what makes sense you need to figure out your market what they're willing to pay what are the cogs you know all those things i think you need to explore all the options as well and not just go okay cool we're just sticking with asia because that's that's what everyone's doing i think exploring all the options understanding the prices and the quality differences is going to be really useful to try to make the best decision
0: speaking of quality so Let's say you've ordered your batch of products and you've got a cluster of bad reviews, you've got some faulty products. How do you navigate that space where you're getting a little bit of bad publicity with something you've just launched? How do you deal with those poor reviews and how do you rewrite the story and change the narrative so that it ends up being a positive for your business and doesn't reflect poorly on your brand?
1: So, so I think that there's different businesses that exist with different end goals and visions. You know, we were talking about vision before some elements of the vision could be, you know, we want to serve this market and do this thing. But another element of the vision is how big do we want to be and how do we want people to feel about our products? And so. If your vision is around quality and you want to be bigger than a 50 million dollar 100 million dollar business that you're going to really have to stand for something and and also stand for quality and so you're going to have to just send all of those products back take a take a loss on that inventory find a better manufacturing partner potentially get someone in that country to to do product quality control Mm -hmm. learn from those mistakes if you want to build a really big company there's a lot of businesses out there that aren't trying to do that that are trying to cut a profit you know I'm not I'm not here to say that that's right or wrong but those people there are ways where they can try to manipulate the review system to try to get enough positive reviews to try to keep selling their products you know maybe they can also just try to be authentic about hey here's why we're cheaper Um, here's some of the problems with the product and build some trust with their customers as well I think that it's a very short-term thinking selling a product that people aren't gonna love because word of mouth is one of the best ways that you can get sales I don't think people necessarily speak about it enough. They're thinking so much about Facebook ads and all the other platforms. But if people genuinely love your product, then they're going to tell people, you know, that's that's one of the best ways you can do marketing, have a really good product. And so there's other ways to make, you know, a good amount of money selling people direct, selling copycat products, selling products that are worse than some of the, the things that are out there. But yeah, I just would think that you'd have to make sure that that's aligning to your vision of the company and and, you know, figure out how you want to deal with that.
0: For sure. And that word of mouth point also plays into this whole space of dark socials and, and those messages and emails and things that you can't track between people. So just to, from my point of view, if you can ensure that you're ticking all the boxes when it comes to quality and when it comes to customer service, then you will reap the rewards and you won't necessarily see those rewards through the data, but it'll all be happening behind the scenes
1: yeah you know and it'll eventually come through the data so Facebook now has an ability to poll people after you click an ad to figure out if you purchased and then what was your experience with the product did you get it in a right amount of time Mm -hmm. what did you think of the quality and you get scored on your ad account and your page And if you start to get a bad score then they start to either take you off the platform or increase your CPMs Mm -hmm. so it will actually show up on the data if you have a bad product there's a lot of third-party review sites Trustpilot product review You can't manipulate those review sites. And so eventually it's going to catch up to you as well. People are going to be negative on the comments of your ads. Mm -hmm. So all these things are going to happen that are going to be a genuine negative for your business. Why not just try to have a really good product? It can be challenging if you mess up an order, you lose a lot of money on it. I get that. Try to figure out a way to liquidate it and move on and try to find a product that you can stand behind. I think it's going to be much easier in the long run.
0: Yeah, it really is the the most important thing at the end of the day. Do you have a... A threshold let's say 2% 3% what's the number of, of returns that's an immediate red flag for you a number where you think okay there's something wrong with my product I need to reevaluate
1: yeah I, I don't know the market data of what a, an average return rate is I think someone told me once it's like four to six percent depends on the category and depends on how generous your return policy is mm-hmm. so if you have a hundred day free return and we'll pay for a return shipping and your return rates under 3% then you probably have a very strong product that people like you know if it's under 1% then it's incredibly strong if it's over 10% then you might have to rethink also just look at specifically why people are returning as well and try to address some of that in the transparency of your messaging as well I think as a general rule you know having a lot of the fastest growing businesses in the direct to consumers e-commerce space they have very generous return policies It's not a coincidence that, you know, Wobby Parker and Casper Mattress and Koala Mattress and all kinds of these big companies, they have very generous return policies because it's trying to make a consumer, customer first, customer experience focused brand and being just very genuine about, cool, we're here to support you. If you didn't love it, we want to refund you. I think that that's going to benefit your brand and your brand perception and the buying experience so much in the future as well. So I think that some brands that are, tentative and go, oh, we've taken our return rate up from 2% to 4% because, you know, we've now made it, you know, from 14 days to 100 days, but you're also, these people didn't want the product, they're going to be unhappy and by allowing those returns, more people are going to come back and buy more and and feel trusted when they're buying from your brand. I think that's going to benefit you in the long run.
0: So let's say someone comes to buy a shirt, right, and it comes with a hole in it, they're going to be angry and they return it. So how then do you change that? To become a positive effect on the people in their circles.
1: Yeah. So I think it's difficult. I was just reading, it's good billion dollar brands. And I was talking about Wobby Parker and how everyone has to spend at least a few weeks in customer service. And in, you know Zappos as well? Uh, Tony Shea's company sells shoes mm-hmm. online, sold that to Amazon. And they're like customer service companies. Wobby Parker, Zappos, a lot of these big companies, they're very customer service focused brands. And so I think that. Trying to be really apologetic, aligning with the customer, and figuring out what you can do to solve the problem as fast as you can. I know in the Wobby Parker example, there was someone complaining that their glasses were the wrong size or the wrong style, and they were going to a wedding that day. So the customer service person found—I don't know if it was them or found someone in their area—and drove a pair directly to them, dropped it off. Those little moments like that. That person's going to be a fan of that brand for, for life but it's also just showing how much you care about the customer experience and if you are making a mistake trying to do your best to not going cool we need to see this proof we need to do this we need to do this like if you've messed up trying to take ownership and trying to be as efficient about solving that problem i think it's going to be to your benefit as a brand and can turn that around in a positive
0: yeah absolutely and that example you just gave was a, a great instance of going above and beyond because that's what people talk about right so many brands are doing the same thing but if you can go that extra level and give a handwritten note in your packaging or deliver, hand deliver with a greeting and say hello, then, then that's really what people remember and that's how that word spreads. Definitely. I'd like to get your thoughts on how the landscape changes as your business grows. If you're starting out and you've had a successful run with one or two products and you're very performance focused, at what stage do you start to stop thinking about performance or stop focusing on performance and start to really push the idea of the brand with the product and does that product change as you grow as well
1: yeah so I think that there's sometimes I say there's four stages which is product market fit performance scale and then brand brand and vision and sometimes people start with brand and vision and they nail it right from the start and good for them. That's awesome. That's 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 a rarity. <laughs> <Must be nice. laughs> that's definitely a rarity. So you're saying someone's in the product market fit stage, you know, they're doing 20K a month, they're doing 100K a month. A lot of their ads are performance focused. And whenever they add a new channel, they're very conscious of the ROAS being very analytical, looking at that channel in a vacuum to try to figure out if it's being profitable. I think that as a brand evolves, you know, the next stage that I think about is scale, which is figuring out Do you want to scale into new locations or new products product launches Mm -hmm. figuring out how you can extract more customer lifetime value from your customers as well as yeah entering new markets and new things like that and i think that that can really take you to 10 20 million dollars a year for these great products that are really good at performance marketing i think that if you do have that bigger vision and you are thinking about brand and vision and people that just Whenever you launch a product, they're excited because they know that you do it well. You know, when Apple launches a product, people have been rumoring that Apple's going to launch a car for the last few years. They keep hiring car designers, so they almost definitely are. I mean, I'm an Apple fan as I look at my MacBook and iPhone (laughs) in front of me. I just know that that product's going to be amazing. You know, sight unseen, I want that car. You know what I mean? You know, they have a consistency between what they're launching with their brand. You know, I wear Lululemon in fashion. I know it's always going to be comfortable. I know it's something that I can wear all day. If I've never bought the socks before, I don't even necessarily need to look at the technical features of that product because I know that they stand for technical ability and comfort and, you know, whatever it is. So I think at a certain point, if you are trying to get to that stage, starting to think about brand vision, standing for something, standing against something as well. I know reading the Lululemon book, they really stand against Nike. They stood against those certain things that they didn't like in terms of they weren't supporting women's fashion. They were taking men's fashion and restyling it for women. And, you know, so they were anti-Nike. They wanted something that was really supportive to women and the women community. So there's a lot of things that you can be against as well. You know, we're against the companies that are not being environmental. We're against the company that are being focused on consumerism and not minimalism. We're, or we're for these things. And so to starting have uh, an elevated feel, having a clear message on who your target audience is, you know, having a feel for every brand touch point. What is the personality? What's the consistency? All the way from customer service to your emails to your social media to your ads. How do you have that consistent messaging? where people can really know and expect a consistent kind of style from this brand and start to connect with it in a deeper way because they can figure out if it is for them or if it isn't for them because there's consistency. And so by having that, that can elevate you from that, you know $20 million stage and these numbers are made up obviously there's some performance companies that can get way further and some that don't go further at all but these are just a vague you know idea but I think eventually there's going to be a ratio that if your performance spend is going to drop off and your brand spend is going to increase and so you know that might happen at a certain point and you don't have to be as brand focused and you can start to look at marketing efficiency you're looking at your total spend correlated to your revenue and so long as you're spending within that same ratio you might be spending on things that are going to be moving the needle down the line as well
0: you're blessed with the knowledge of hindsight and you've gone through this process before what about people who are in the earlier stages of the entrepreneurial journey and understand that there will come a point where you need to shift from performance to brand what can they consider when thinking about product potentially multiple products at the outset in order to make the transition in the future a little bit easier
1: yeah so i think brand is such a big vague broad term so i think that even from the start having a product that people are excited about you know and, and a brand that people can connect to in some way it doesn't have to be the most well thought out doesn't have to stand for something doesn't have to have the best packaging in the world and the best art direction but having something where people can connect to is going to be advantageous than just going pure performance and just throwing anything on the wall and seeing what sticks so I think that having some level of connection and and also just listening to your customers figuring out who they are figuring out what type of messaging are they connecting to is going to be a good way to start with but I would also say use it as a, a reference point figure out the brands that you like mimic some of the brands that you like there's so many good brands out there You don't have to copy someone in your industry. There's thousands of brands that are doing things really well. Figure out what are the elements that you like to kind of borrow from for your own brand, but don't get distracted by brand at the cost of performance, because at the end of the day, you're going to need that performance dollar to be able to properly reinvest into the photo shoots, the video shoots, the content, the brand overlift, the packaging that you're going to want to do in the future. Once you have a stronger idea of your brand. So I think that there's an equation but making sure that it's not necessarily getting in the way of your performance so that you can hit your financial milestones and allow that to reinvest into the vision for your future.
0: Fascinating. Something that you just said that really stood out to me was being aware of the space you're in, the brands that you deal with, the competitors in the landscape. It brings to mind for me the idea of the circle of competence. You invest your time in in what you're familiar with. But something else that you mentioned was taking ideas that already exist so that comes back to that debate of innovation versus invention. We'd all love to invent the the next big thing, but we've seen historically that the biggest companies in the world have just taken something and made it better. So is that the mindset you have as well?
1: Yeah. I mean, if you can invent something and it's amazing and people want it awesome, like uh, congrats to you and if you've really created something that that's a standout product or whatever it is solving a really interesting problem there's a massive opportunity so but obviously that's going to be more challenging product development's going to be harder it might be harder to validate in some aspects a lot of the businesses that we see be successful at megaphone they uh maybe took a product category or a product that they found and they, they made a slight innovation on it they've added a feature they've added a brand to it um, they've added a style to it whatever it might be or they've innovated a product category slightly, that can be enough to, if you found a big enough problem and you're doing your marketing and your messaging and and the product's good, that can be a really big opportunity as well. Again, it always depends on your goals and what you're excited about. There's no right or wrong way. And I think both paths are good, but I definitely think that there's an easier path of the two. There's a less expensive path of the two. Additive improvement can be an easier path.
0: In a situation like that, where you are taking something that already exists and putting your flair on it, maybe improving it adjusting it or giving it a an entirely new use that someone hadn't thought of before how do you go about ensuring that the intellectual property belongs to you and that you don't risk someone else just coming along and and swiping your product down the line
1: yeah I mean I'm not a IP lawyer or a patent lawyer or anything and uh, definitely not my strong suit but I think that some entrepreneurs are overly scared of people stealing their ideas they're not moving fast enough they're not executing and if you're moving fast and you're executing well, then you're going to be moving at a speed faster than your competition's going to try to catch up with you. And they're always going to have what you were doing two years ago. And so your advantage is your innovation and your process to improve. If you are looking at patenting an idea, I think that there's definitely value in that. If you've made an innovation, if you've invented something, um, you know, I'd say speak to a lawyer about that, figure it, figure that out. I know it's obviously going to be expensive to make that happen and then to protect that if there's something really unique, there's obviously going to be a lot of value in that as well. So, you know, I think I can encourage that. But I would also say don't get too hung up in those those steps as well. And don't let that stop you from executing. Mm-hmm.
0: Do you have any other examples of things that entrepreneurs might focus their attention on uh, in a distracting sense? For example, the intellectual property. Is there anything else that in your experience has brought up some red flags with you that you've realized, okay, perhaps I've spent too much time thinking about which color I should bring out in my new product or perhaps I've been thinking about a website name for too long. Do you have any examples that uh, people listening can can quickly implement into their own businesses?
1: Yeah so I think again everyone's different but a common thread I think that people could improve on is just by taking action faster Mm -hmm. and so there should be some level of planning and you know we spoke a lot about testing a product idea and and not jumping into too much so there's obviously some areas where I think that you should slow down and do some level of research but I do think fundamentally people do too much business planning too much analysis and it's funny because we've literally spoken about this for most of the podcast but a lot of these things can be done in a day it doesn't take weeks or months reaching out to suppliers a lot of these things can be done very fast there's going to be an advantage to the people that take action really fast and that comes into your testing framework and your marketing decisions and, and all kinds of decisions as well that's going to allow you to move faster iterate faster learn faster and so i think speed of decisions and again it's not a fundamental rule but i would say as a general rule i think it's going to be really advantageous and sometimes for me actually i work with like my business partners like Lauren at megaphone or ben and Sylvie they're someone that is maybe a little bit more slow down and better with spreadsheets than i am and i'm like let's just jump in and let's do it Mm -hmm. so i think that that's something that i see entrepreneurs potentially maybe people come to me saying i'm thinking about this thing yeah i'd I'd say that that's one of one of the biggest ones as well yeah
0: and a lot of it can also be outsourced as well is that right
1: in terms of in
0: terms of the, the the things that that people get caught up in the IP, the the shipping, the the manufacturing, are there intermediary bodies that that you can go to who can
1: help you out with that and
0: streamline the process?
1: I think so. But there's also just, you can take action by trying to find mentors that can solve these problems. You can read books, you can go online, you can just jump in, you mm-hmm. can start calling around. Even if there isn't an intermediary, that's perfect for that as well. You can just jump in and, and solve it.
0: It all comes down to being proactive, I guess. I think so. Awesome. Well, Max, I've definitely learned a lot from all of that. Uh, I'd love to wrap it up with a few rapid fire questions. So as best as you can, try and keep this to a yes or no, or a one word answer. Ready to go? Let's do it. Would you ever sell a product on something other than Shopify?
1: It's hard to do one answer. There's something called Headless Shopify, which is still Shopify, but a different front end. So I'm going to say no for me personally. Oh, in fact, under the right circumstances, but leading towards no
0: <laughs> have you tried something else other than Shopify in the past
1: uh, we're looking at headless Shopify which is a way where you can make your front-end feel like a native app and connect it to Shopify back-end um, it's more expensive harder to develop but it can create a better experience on browsing so we're looking at that but yeah I do think that there's some limitations with Shopify in terms of checkout and things and things like that so it depends on exactly what you're doing but for, you know I love Shopify I think it's a great platform
0: and psychologically do you think that customers realize that they're on a Shopify platform is, is that something that could potentially be a hurdle for them to convert knowing that this is just a, a cookie cutter template that hundreds of other websites replicate
1: I don't think so I think it could be a benefit in some sense I, w- I wouldn't I wouldn't think that that's too much of a hurdle
0: okay uh, next question we'll definitely be opening up a can of worms here I feel is drop shipping dead no Love it. Move on. (laughs) Uh, In terms of profit margins, is there currently a more lucrative e-commerce space than health and beauty?
1: Yeah, I don't think health and beauty is a specifically good industry. Um, I think that every industry there's good products. I think that there's some industries that people focus on just because it's in the media or, or they specifically have some connection to that industry. But there's heaps of industries with massive opportunities.
0: Awesome. Thanks for that. And finally, can you realistically scale to over $10 million in yearly revenue without creating an in house manufacturing facility? Definitely. Great. So, Max, I'm going to wrap things up by asking a couple of questions, which you're going to ask to all of our other guests uh, as they come on throughout the series. Uh, You mentioned that you're reading the Lululemon book at the moment. Is there anything else that you're reading or any other podcast you're listening to that you think would be really beneficial for our listeners?
1: There's so much that I listen to in terms of podcasts. There would be Noah Kagan, Masters of Scale, Finding Founders, E Commerce Playbook, 2x E Commerce Podcast, Built to Scale, Sugatan. There's a lot of good e commerce podcasts out there. And if you pick and choose the ones that are of interest to you, I think there's a value there. Uh, in terms of books, there's almost too much to, to even know. Give us one. I mean, I'll say one of my favorite books of all time is Six Pillars of Self Esteem, which I absolutely love. You read that, right? I'm
0: reading that right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah.
1: The other one would be The Fountainhead by Ayn Rand. I, I've got a tattoo of the cover on my leg. So you'd hope I like it.
0: (laughs) You'd hope so. Okay, Max, is there anything else you'd like to add? Any thoughts that are just rushing to get out of your brain?
1: No, other than if anyone wants to ask me any questions, just DM me at uh, Instagram at Max Herdon or on LinkedIn, Max Herdon. I'm really happy to try to answer everyone's questions as best as I can. And thank you so much for listening to our first episode.
0: Thanks for coming in, Max. Looking forward to whatever comes down the line and thanks everyone for listening in. We'll leave Max's recommendations in the show notes and tune in next time. See you guys. See ya. Thanks for tuning into the Minds podcast. To stay up to date with the latest e-commerce trends, scaling hacks and marketing techniques, join us on our Facebook community, Megaminds. If you're looking to scale your own e-commerce business, we at Megaphone would love to help. Get in touch for a free strategy session.